It's Thursday, February 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. FDA scientists have given their stamp of approval and said that Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is safe and effective in fighting COVID-19. This could lead to its emergency use authorization very soon. The vaccine reduced moderate to severe cases by 66%. It does not require cold storage and is most importantly, only a single shot. Matthew Herper, senior writer at Stat News, joins us for more on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which could also help protect against new variants. Next, the latest Gallup poll shows that adults who identify as LGBTQ has risen about one percentage point since the last update we got in 2017. 5.6% of adults identify this way, with 1 in 6 adults in Generation Z considering themselves LGBTQ. Jeffrey Jones, senior editor at Gallup, joins us for more. Finally, a team of scientists with the World Health Organization are exploring the origins of COVID-19 and are focusing on two animal types for possible vectors where the illness jumped to humans. Investigators say that ferret badgers and rabbits, which were sold at the Wuhan market, could have played a role in the spread. Drew Henshaw, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more on the WHO investigation into COVID-19. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The number one goal is preventing hospitalizations and deaths, preventing those severe illnesses. All three vaccines are terrific. That's what I'm recommending to my family. Whenever it's your turn, get any of the vaccines you can. That's what matters. Joining us now is Matthew Herper, senior writer at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Thanks for having me. We have some very good news on the vaccine front. Johnson & Johnson, it's been shown that their vaccine is effective at preventing hospitalizations and severe effects of COVID-19. This is from scientists at the FDA. We're seeing about, I think it's 66% effective when it comes to uh, moderate to severe cases of COVID-19. So, Matthew, tell us a little bit more about what we're hearing with this Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Right. So what happened is that Johnson & Johnson released data about a month ago in a press release. But the process for evaluating these vaccines is that they go through the FDA. And the FDA, really unique in the world, independently looks at the data and reanalyzes the data that the company produces and issues its own report and then holds a public meeting, which will be happening Friday. And so the documents before that public meeting came out and they had some good news both some really clear data on hospitalizations and a general sense of approval from the FDA researchers. Sometimes they're not as positive. So it looks like this may be another option. Now, the big pluses on this is, one, it's a one-shot dose. So you don't have to go back for a second jab in the arm. And it also doesn't need to be kept frozen like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines do. So shipping and handling of all of this will be a lot easier much easier to transport. And that's a big advantage. It does not look like we're going to have a huge amount of supply to start off with. So it doesn't dramatically change how fast we're going to be getting shots into people's arms. But for a lot of people, I think, and a lot of experts I talk to think this will be a great option. It's one and done. Yeah, I think some of the numbers I saw, they might have about 4 million that are produced right now ready to send out. So if it gets approved, they can get those out really quick. But it wouldn't be until April, possibly, where that they can really ramp up their production to start distributing that. Right. And we'll also be getting over that where there are hundreds of millions of doses of the two vaccines that have EUA, the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines, that are expected to arrive in the U.S. by July. So there's going to be a lot more vaccine available. 
the J&J supply will ramp up and we'll be getting more of those other two vaccines. That leaves, there's a vaccine coming from Novavax. We don't really know about how much we'll be getting, but the early results issued via press release again were very good and we're waiting for U.S. results on the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, some other good news with this Johnson & Johnson one is its effectiveness against these variants that we've been hearing a lot about. So it fared better than expected when it comes to those. I think the way to interpret that is we'd seen some results and the new results that they showed today looked a bit better than what we'd seen in terms of variants. There still does seem to be decreased efficacy against the South Africa variant, 135, which is really the one that we're all worried about. But it did look better than what we'd seen previously. And what J&J has said is that it seems like with those variants, this vaccine is still preventing severe disease and hospitalization, which are the key things we've always wanted from a vaccine here. The idea that you'd prevent asymptomatic infection or mild cases is kind of a bonus compared to just making sure that people don't end up in the hospital. What did we see when it comes to side effects? Keeping in mind that 40,000 people were in this trial there were 15 serious blood clots, including some DVTs, in that vaccine group compared to 10 in the placebo group. That's something the FDA plans to monitor. There was also some ringing in the ears in the vaccine group and not in the placebo group. So that's kind of an odd one that we'll want to watch. Public health officials might have a messaging problem when it comes to pumping the Johnson & Johnson one out. When we're seeing guys like Pfizer and Moderna say that their vaccine is 95% effective against coronavirus, just listening to numbers, right? This says 66%. So Mm -hmm. are are they going to have a challenge in getting people to want to take this one over the other? Or, you know, how's that going to work out? The J&J vaccine may turn out to be on par after a second dose, and that study is being done. But unlike Pfizer and Moderna, the second dose is going to be months after the first. And that also slows down the study because you got to wait, right, for people to get their second dose. So we're not expecting those data until kind of summerish. But the big thing is, is for a lot of people, there is also the appeal of a single dose here. And I don't think we should understate that. And the effect on severe disease is big. So the problem is going to be that in the initial rollout, you really want people to take whatever vaccine they're given because being vaccinated is so much better than not being vaccinated. And that is part of the path to getting the world back to normal. And the public health authorities are absolutely going to have to articulate that. Now, again, because there's not going to be that much supply of this initially, they're going to have time for a learning curve. Right now, the demand for vaccines clearly outstrips supply. That's why you're hearing so many stories of people desperately logging on and trying to get vaccine. What Scott Gottlieb, who used to run the FDA, has raised the issue of, you know, we're going to reach a point where the people who want to get vaccinated will have been vaccinated, and we're still going to need to vaccinate more people. And that's when convincing people who are less sure to take vaccine and to take the vaccine that's available is going to become more of an issue. Matthew Herper, senior writer at Stat News, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, just definitely a more you know, kind of willingness, you know, definitely less of a stigma attached to it. And people, especially young people, probably feel a lot more open about expressing that than they did in the past. Joining us now is Jeffrey Jones, senior editor at Gallup. Thanks for joining us, Jeffrey. Sure. 
according to the latest Gallup poll, we have a record number of U.S. adults. This is at 5.6% that are identifying as LGBTQ. This is an increase of about 1% from the last data that we have that I think is from 2017. So there's a lot of uh, interesting numbers that are coming out of this. One of the interesting things is that one in six adults in Generation Z, these are our youngest adults, consider themselves LGBT. So Jeffrey, uh, tell us what we're seeing in the numbers. The number of Americans who identify as LGBT is up. It's at 5.6% now. We've seen it steadily increasing. Gallup first measured in 2012 and did it annually through 2017 and then started up again last year. So over that time, we've seen a steady increase. So 5.6% is kind of about thought we would be given what we've observed over the past you know, eight or so years. One of the biggest findings is how high it is among young adults. So 16% of Generation Z adults. So this is just the first part of Generation Z. A lot of them are not 18 yet. So right now it's at 16% among that generation, but you know, it could go higher as more people in that generation become adults. And that's almost twice as high as what we see among millennials, which is 9%, and then the older generations, it's 4% or less. So it's really that younger generation that seems to be driving it. I think that's why we see the increase, just more kind of young people moving into adulthood and a generation that just seems increasingly likely to identify as LGBT. For the first time also, when this question was asked uh, most recently, the respondents were asked to give their precise sexual orientation rather than kind of just a simple uh, yes or no. So we were able to get a few more details in that respect as well. The main takeaway there is that slightly more than half of LGBT adults say that they're bisexual. And then the next most common category is gay, around 25%. And then lesbian, transgender are smaller, about 12%. And then we also allow people to volunteer some other kind of gender identity beyond those four. I mean, those are the four main ones, but we obviously recognize that a lot of people consider themselves, you know, they kind of identify with a different label. So we allow them to do that as well. So that's, you know, the first time that we've done it in the past, just whether you are any of those things and we kind of stopped there, but we get a little more detail now. I, I should say that's consistent with what we know from other research that roughly about half of LGBT adults identify as bisexual. And what about gender breakdowns? Because there were some differences there. Women more likely than men to identify as LGBT and even bisexual. So 6.4% of women identify as LGBT and 4.9% of men do. Maybe about two-thirds of women say they're bisexual, and that's by far the most common identity among uh, women LGBT. Lesbian is 1.3%. Among men, actually, more men consider themselves gay than anything else, 2.5% gay, 1.8% bisexual. Now, LGBT rights have come a long way. You know, we obviously have same-sex marriages legalized nationwide. But the big question is, and, you know, we don't have that many years of data with this, obviously, but does this represent a shift in sexual orientation for Americans at large? Or is it just a bigger willingness for people to be open about identifying this way? That is probably the key question, and I don't think our data can answer it, but definitely the way society is, it's a lot easier for people 
who are becoming adults today than it was in the past to, you know, express a different kind of gender orientation or sexual orientation than people had in the past. So I think that's a big part of it, you know, especially with such a large proportion saying they're bisexual, maybe there's somewhat less of a stigma attached to that than, you know, some of the other identities. But regardless, whether you're lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, just definitely a more you know, kind of willingness, you know, definitely less of a stigma attached to it. And people, especially young people, probably feel a lot more open about expressing that than they did in the past. Jeffrey Jones, senior editor at Gallup. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Was this a place where it jumped into human beings? You know, was there some dead or live animal there that was carrying this virus and it, it went into humans at the market? Or, as is very probable, was this one of the first super spreading events? Joining us now is Drew Hinshaw, senior reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We have a team from the World Health Organization that recently made a four-week trip out to Wuhan, China. Their goal there was to study the origins of COVID-19, the coronavirus, and see how it happened, how the outbreak started happening. And more importantly, we already heard from them. They ruled out that it could have been any type of lab leak accident. And right now what they're focusing on are two different animal types that could have helped make that crossover. You know, we think that it originated in bats and then there was another vector animal that transmitted it to humans. And they're focusing on ferret, badgers, and rabbits. So Drew, tell us a little bit more about what we're learning here. They're focusing on these animals that were present in the market, you know, their carcasses. There were a couple carcasses of ferret badgers found in the freezer at this market, and they tested negative, but we know that the animal is capable of carrying this virus. And likewise, there were rabbits present there. What we know about this virus that we didn't know, say, a year ago, is what animals it spreads through, What, like mink, for example. We've learned a lot. You know, hundreds of animals have been studied for their susceptibility to COVID-19 and to the virus that causes COVID-19. And right now they're narrowing down that list and focusing on, well, which animals were potentially present at this market or other markets that could have been the vector. And the market there in question is such a huge bit of this thing. There actually, you wrote another article recently too, that we're also learning that COVID-19 might've been spreading around China even before the major outbreaks in December of 2019. So it had probably already been floating around a little bit, but the markets are so important because this is where they think that the outbreak happened at large, where mass quantities of people really started becoming infected. Yeah, this is the first place they know it was spreading. So it's sort of natural to start at this market. The question of the market is sort of one of the big riddles. Was this a place where it, it jumped into human beings? You know, was there some dead or live animal there that was carrying this virus and it it went into humans at the market? Or, as is very probable, was this one of the first super spreading events? You know, people are at a market, it's not well ventilated, a lot of humidity in the air, they're talking over each other. It's the kind of place where this virus spreads very easily. Now, we know the scientists are out there trying to get as much information as possible, but there has been a little bit of tension between the U.S. and China, things with uh, sharing all of the data that they might have. China has said that the virus probably originated outside of their country. So everybody's kind of throwing blame back and forth. But this also makes it more difficult for the scientists themselves who are out there trying to get to the root of it. It makes it more difficult for them. There's a few things on that. One, 
this trip happened more than a year later. And there's just a lot of information that's erased with time. They have nearly 100 people who are potential COVID cases that predate, you know, the confirmation of the virus. And we don't know if they had COVID because a year has gone by. It's very hard to test people for antibodies a year later and know whether that information is useful. You know, the U.S. wanted them to probe this lab theory. Well, the team, they can only send the experts that China invited. And there was no political ability to have this lab forensically tested. That was off the table from the beginning. I mean, politics hang over everything that this, this team is doing. The nature of the WHO is they can only do what they're invited to do. And on that front, too, you know, getting samples, looking at all this stuff so much later on, even when, you know, news started coming out about the markets, right away, a lot of the vendors there started cleaning things up, you know, throwing things away. Right, that's so right. it's just hard to get all the evidence the of the initial was, spots. Sorry, the market was cleaned very, very early on, which, you know, it's understandable. There's an outbreak here. You, know, you can understand it from one point of view, but a lot of evidence was lost. And that was a year ago. You know, just there's only so much we can find out when a year goes by. You know, they're going to learn some things. They're going to learn a lot about which animals are susceptible to this virus. You know, hopefully we'll find a similar virus dwelling in bats, or maybe something that's very, very similar to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. But in terms of tracking, like, who was the first person to get this? The other problem is a lot of cases are mild and asymptomatic, like right. anybody. I mean, if you had flu-like symptoms anywhere in central China last year, it's a very big group of people. It's very hard to narrow that down and figure out who was patient number one. So back to these animals, these ferret badgers and rabbits, why are we honing in on them? Uh, you know, I know there's has to do things with uh, the supply chains of these animals getting into the country as well. So why do we return to these two animals right now? Well, these two animals do too. They provide a pathway for how this virus could have gotten into this city and spread. We know these animals can contract this disease and they, we know they can be infected with this virus and they can spread it. And we know they were at this market. So there's something there. There's something to investigate, at least. It's at least worthy of being investigated further. And right now, there's a lot of avenues of, that the WHO has to look into without discounting any one idea. And this, this one's pretty promising. And as I mentioned before, there's some uh, new evidence that says that COVID-19 was spreading in China before these first confirmed cases. What are we seeing on that front? I know that has, it has to do a, yeah. a lot of genetic sequencing that we've been doing with the virus. They do this thing called the most recent common ancestor. And you have basically two types of COVID-19. that, or The virus sort of splits. The genetic sequencing of the virus splits. I'm trying to describe this in the most layperson's terms possible here. But, you know, early January, December, you see some genetic differences in the virus that people have. I'm talking 2019, December 2019. You see some differences. The cluster at the market, it's all pretty much the identical virus. But there's other group of people who have a different the virus is genetically different in slight ways. And when you look at the rate at which this virus mutates, it's like one or two mutations a month, you start looking back, well, when did this virus split into these two branches? And that takes you anywhere between late September to late November with the kind of like November, maybe late October being the rough estimate of when this virus first began spreading. Drew Hinshaw, senior reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, too. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.